Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and the following interview is being republished with permission from the excellent podcast Psychologists Off the Clock. That's Psychologists Off the Clock at offtheclockpsych.com. I hope you enjoy the interview. Ever wonder what psychologists talk about over coffee? I'm Debbie Sorensen, a clinical psychologist in Mile High, Denver, Colorado, where I specialize in rehab and health psychology and acceptance and commitment therapy. And I'm Diana Hill, a clinical psychologist in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California, where I specialize in mindfulness and values-based approaches to therapy. In this podcast, we bring psychology research into practice by discussing topics from psychology with experts in the field and with each other. You'll get a glimpse into the books we read, the research we think is interesting, and the ideas from psychology that we use to thrive in our own lives. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. Hi, Diana. Hi, Debbie. It's really good to talk with you today. Good to talk with you, too. Um, we're excited about the sequence we have here because for the last couple of episodes, we've been talking about how eating affects our mood and nutrition affects our mood. And this week, we're kind of flipping that around and we're talking about how our mood affects our eating behaviors and our eating habits. Um, so Diana had the opportunity to interview Dr. Deborah Safer, who is an expert on a treatment for binge eating disorder called um, well, it's treatment for a lot of things, but it's used for binge eating disorders called dialectical behavior therapy. So Diana, um, tell us a little bit about Deborah Safer and what you guys, how you met her. Yeah, so Deborah Safer was actually one of my mentors in graduate school. And I really, um, she really changed the course of my graduate training and that I was able to move into more of acceptance and mindfulness-based approaches. And we worked together in, in combination with Linda Craighead to adapt DBT for bulimia when we added in an appetite awareness training component to DBT. And she has been really, um, for her whole research, a lot of her research career, focused on this adaptation of DBT for binge eating. So we're going to talk a little bit about that today. Uh, we're also going to talk about some of the skills that she used and this new workbook that's going to be coming out in 2018 um, that clients and clinicians will be able to use for eating disorders. How about you? How, how have you uh, used or how have you learned it? Yeah, I learned it. I did. I was really had a cool um, practicum way back in the day where I worked in a partial hospital program that used all DBT all the time. So it was a great training experience for me. Um, I learned a ton. And yeah, so I don't really do a lot of DBT anymore, like the full on intervention in, um, in my current work, but I still do use some of the principles. Um, and one that I really love is called opposite action. I use it all the time with my clients because, um, basically our emotions kind of, sometimes it's almost as if they have a life of their own and they want us to do something. Um, and this is about, sometimes it's, we're better off if we actually do the opposite. Mm -hmm. So like if you're Diana, when you're feeling kind of depressed or down in the dumps, what is your, what are your emotions telling you to do? Crawl in the bed. Right. Yeah. Crawl into bed or like lie on the couch or just be inactive. And op the opposite action would be to get up and exercise or go to a party or just do something active. 
um, kind of like with anxiety, you know, you with anxiety, you want to avoid the thing you're afraid of. And the opposite of action would be to go ahead and do it, you know, to approach the thing you're afraid of. Right. So it's a really interesting idea. Mm-hmm. So DBT uh, pulls from a lot of behavioral principles, but also Eastern practices as well to create this really skills based um, active intervention that uh, is is really helpful um, for a number of different behavioral disorders. But today we're going to talk about eating disorders. And Deborah Safer is an associate professor and co-director of the Stanford Adult Eating and Weight Disorders Clinic. She obtained her MD from University of California, San Francisco, and completed her residency as well as postdoctoral fellowship in eating disorder intervention and research with the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences, also at Stanford University. And her research and clinical work in eating disorders and obesity really focuses on improving patient outcomes by developing and conducting clinical intervention trials to establish evidence-based treatments. She's written a number of uh, research articles in the area as well as book chapters and books. And one of the books that I find most helpful as a therapist is her uh, book, Dialectical Behavioral Therapy for Binge Eating and Bulimia by uh, Safer, Telch, and Chen. And she'll begin coming out with a workbook in 2018. So here's my interview with Dr. Safer and um, I hope you enjoy it. Well, welcome, Deborah Safer, and I'm really excited to talk to you today about your research on DBT for emotional eating and binge eating. And maybe we can just start by talking a little bit about what DBT is and how it evolved out of um, sort of the standard DBT to now you applying applying it with eating concerns. Yeah. Well, first of all, I'm glad to be here too. And yeah, DBT was originally developed by Marsha Linehan and um, she had originally been conceptualizing its use for patients with borderline personality disorder. So patients who, you know, we would call emotionally dysregulated across various domains. Um, But often, especially around, um, you know, being able to handle um, strong emotions like anger or feelings of abandonment and having difficulty um, regulating their behavior under those circumstances. Mm-hmm. And Christy Telch started working with Marsha um, in research to see if DBT could be adapted usefully for patients who binge eat. Um, and so that's you know where I sort of came in. I was a postdoctoral fellow, actually initially a resident and then a postdoctoral fellow working um, with Christy Telch. Um, is one of my supervisors, and also Stuart Agers, who also, um, you know, was interested in this area, and that helped. Um, that sort of gave me a project. So after Christy Telch had been had applied DBT for binge eating disorder, I applied it for patients um, with bulimia nervosa, mm-hmm. and um, so they're you know binging and purging, and we wanted to see if the manual she developed would be effective um, with this population, and then that got me really you know into the area, um, and then. Um, for various reasons, um, Christy Telsch was no longer at Stanford. And so I, you know, I felt the research was very important. And I started doing more of it with binge eating disorder alone versus bulimia. Um, Our results were slightly better in that area. Now what we're doing most recently is looking at, can we deliver DBT in a guided self-help format? Mm-hmm. And that's where your workbook comes into the picture that I hope that we can talk a bit about today is how you've taken the protocol that you've used in individual therapy with clients and now turned it into a workbook that people in the, in the community can work through either on their own or with a therapist. And, exactly. And as you're describing DBT and how it was initially 
use for borderline personality disorder. And then Christy Talch and Agress and, and you looked at how it could be used for, for um, binge eating. I think a key component to that is the conceptualization of um, dysregulated eating being related to emotions. And yeah. that was sort of new. Uh, it, it's sort of an additional way of viewing um, eating disorders. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about uh, the emotion regulation component of um, that sort of model around, um, around uh, binge eating and overeating. Absolutely. You know, a lot of it is really driven by how patients um, describe their eating. Uh -huh. So, you know, one of the things that I'll do when I'm beginning to work with a client is ask them to describe their most recent binge. And I'm listening for triggers. Mm -hmm. um, and so the emotion regulation model is, you know, basically that there's some sort of trigger and it doesn't matter so much what it is. It could have been some sort of interpersonal um, argument. It could have been that they looked in the mirror and they had a thought about you know, that they hated how they looked and they, there's some sort of self-criticism involved. It can be cognitive. It can be interpersonal. It could, you know, just be that they're in some ways that they're, they're seeing foods that are highly desirable mm -hmm. and they can't regulate the desire for the food. Nothing particularly seems to have been going on. Um, or they're just alone in their house and that the repetitive, um, that the habit of constantly being of being alone when let's say they're used to having everyone around and suddenly being in the house feels so um, enticing and the food's so enticing that they can't they can't tolerate or regulate the emotions that come up and they could be you know a number of different emotions in all those scenarios. Um, but what's common um, is this belief that they that there's an inability to tolerate it and it feels physically uncomfortable mm -hmm. and. Um, and there's this sense that something must be done to dampen down that emotion. And that's where we see food turning to food as this overlearned behavior, meaning that, you know, they've done it so many times um, that it, it sometimes they're not even aware that they're making a conscious choice. Mm -hmm. um, it just feels a compelled. There's a compelling feeling to to eat. Um, and patients will describe eating as as comforting, as numbing. As um, the, it is not necessarily, in fact, um, many times as time goes on, not really enjoyable. It, it's more of a spacing out. Yeah. And, and I'm not saying it's for the same for everybody, but those are the kinds of things that we might hear. Right. So what I'm hearing there is that there's sort of an automaticity to the eating, yes. but there's a trigger that's often an emotional trigger that um, that sort of sets off the, the chain of events. And uh, such an important component of DBT is being able to, to slow that process down and be able to look at what are the steps that led up to the eating and then what would be skills that I could use uh, exactly. instead. And can you talk a little bit about chain analysis? Because that's really one of the first skills that you teach in, yes. in, your, in your manual. Yes. And I think it's just like you said, it's about, uh, I mean, I think a key is the understanding the automatic automaticity and breaking it down, slowing it down. Mm -hmm. um, and so one of the things that we really try to help patients see, which they may not at first, is that this is a behavior that does make some sense. There are patterns, even though it may seem like something that is just totally self-sabotaging and hurtful and, you know, they can't understand that that's part of the, the the horror of it for them is that it doesn't make any sense. Um, they know time after time that it doesn't really help, um, but they seem to be unable to break the cycle. Um, so I think a key is looking that there is some sort of prompting event, something that, that we feel usually happens in the environment. And by that, I mean, it could mean 
being in the house alone is the event. Mm -hmm. It could be something that happens with another person. It could be something that happens when, you know, then when, when one is by oneself, um, but that that leads to the ultimately to, I mean, sets off a, a series of thoughts and feelings and behaviors um, that we can look at and that those ultimately will lead the person to engage in the binge eating. And then that itself has consequences that could set a person up for the next binge because they feel so horrible about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but that these, but that each, we call it, we think of it as a chain of, um, of that links the first thing that happened, the prompting event to the, um, to the binge, that chain, um, is made up of links that we can each, we can examine. And the idea is that this is a learned behavior and that we can break the chain at any point. And in doing so, the whole thing doesn't unfold towards the binge. Right. Yeah. So, so when, um, when I'm doing chain analyses with clients in a session, we'll also look at in, in the vulnerability factor. So what right. maybe what was in the background that made you more vulnerable for this prompting event to trigger the chain? So maybe you were really hungry, you hadn't eaten, maybe yes. you had a poor night's sleep, maybe you had too much to drink last night, maybe you're just overall stressed. And then and then the prompting event comes on or sort of sets off the chain. And sometimes chains can be you know, minutes <laughs> right. or an hour. And sometimes chains can be all day. The prompting event starts in the morning and then the, the client ends up binging at night. But what's so nice about, I think about DBT and one of the reasons why I was so attracted to it is that Marsha Linehan, um, who I just really think, I just am so grateful to her for really changing the field of psychology because she has the foundation in behaviorism. So when you're talking about a chain analysis, these are behavioral principles of a functional behavioral chain of what's happening. But then she also balances it with um, these Eastern practices of things like mindfulness and wise mind and acceptance. And so some of the skills that you're, while you're doing behavioral change, you know, kind of interventions are also acceptance-based and mindfulness-based interventions. And that's what I think really also sets DBT apart from something like uh, traditional cognitive behavioral therapies. But the skills that she's using are uh, are both acceptance and change-based skills. So maybe we can talk a little bit about those and, and what, you know, the different modules yes. that of skills that you teach within uh, the DBT for, yeah. that you use. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so I, I do think a lot of it does come back to, you know, the need, the, the patient-driven part. Like I think Marsha was really looking at her population of patients and what she noticed and what they she felt they needed. And I think um, she felt, you know, and I think we see this in patients with binge eating, but I think she was especially, you know, at first looking at patients with borderline personality disorder who had such intense self-hatred um, and, and a sense of um, inabil- inability to stand themselves um, and who and what they were and who they were for, you know, various reasons. Um, And so they felt absolutely that they needed to change. Um, And what she saw is that it was impossible that the, as you were, you know, saying that the, what was so revolutionary, I think about her in bringing in the acceptance is she was really seeing that when you're so focused on the need to change yourself, you actually can't change. Mm-hmm. It's an impossible state from which to do anything productively. And that there had to be uh, this part of you that accepted who you are, who you were just as you were and in that moment, even if you didn't approve of who you were. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it's that, and I think she, you know, sort of found out more about dialectical philosophy, which really believes that there is no one truth 
that there are that there are multiple truths that can be true simultaneously. You have to accept who you are and you have to change. They're both true. And the um, synthesis that you look for is some way of getting your mind around two things that seem incompatible. Like, how can I have to change and have to accept myself? Like, how do you do that? And so she really focused in, in like, in that sense about acceptance in that moment, that accepting who you are in that moment is change. And so you find yourself getting out of these sticky, rigid places where something must be one or the other and, um, and sort of expi- expanding how you think. Um, and that's really particularly helpful, I think, for any sort of rigid mind state, which demands, you know, some sort of something. So, so anyway, so I would, that's just sort of, I think, the background. And then in the, the three modules that we teach, and we can talk about, um, you know, why there are only three, but we begin with mindfulness, which is, as you're saying, it's so key in all of this. And that's really that ability to um, to take a step back and be in the present moment with full attention, but you're not immersed in it. It's sort of, sometimes we, we will use the analogy of, let's say, having, um, well, this is more with emotions, but having your emotions being like a, a river that's raging in front of you. And there's a way to observe what you see without being carried along um, by, by the raging water. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the, the, the first component of mindfulness or actually, well, there's wise mind, which is another component that, that you teach also, but that being able to be an observer without getting caught up. And one of the, the observation skills that I really like to do with uh, clients is even just starting with observing and maybe even listeners could do this right now is observing your hand mm-hmm. and like looking at the back of your hand, looking at the palm of your hand And what we notice is that you can observe at the level of pure, just, huh, interest, what curiosity, openness, what am I noticing? But oftentimes what gets in the way and steals us from our observation is judgment. So all of a sudden now I'm looking at the wrinkles and the scars and the, you know, cuticles. And and the skill set is very basic of going back to the level of pure observation. And that can be very helpful when you're thinking about something like emotions, being able to have the skill of observing an emotional state without getting into what you also talk about in your uh, workbook, the second arrow or the judgment about the emotion. And so developing that, that skill of, of observation is, is a component of mindfulness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I was going to say that, you know, for listeners too, if they have trouble with, you know, because people have, um, I've noticed at least different ways of, or different strengths. Like, so some people will do well with looking with visually and looking and then noticing the judgmental thoughts about their, the back of their hand. Some people will do better. And uh, some of our listeners might want to try it to just actually focus on temperature. What is your hand on? You know, what's the material like that you're touching at the moment? If it's, if it's that, or the temperature of, if you're sitting on a chair of the, the rubbery, you know, whatever it might be. Um, but, but being aware of texture and temperature for some people focusing their mind that way is a little easier. And I think what is important is, um, you know, that people work with whatever is best for them because we just really want them to practice that ability to be in the moment. DBT doesn't say that you have to have a meditation practice. Mindfulness is important, but actually formal practice is not required Mm -hmm. to, for this, um, treatment just as something to mention. Um, and then as you're saying, the other uh, module is emotion regulation because the very same skills that we're using about observing 
one's hand, let's say, or the temperature or um, what we are listening to can be applied towards emotions. Mm -hmm. And that's part of what's going on in the skill of emotion regulation. Um, and then, and at that place, we're also looking a lot at ways to decrease vulnerability to emotions as one other area. And that's what you had talked about as being an important part of the chain that I actually didn't start with. But yeah, it doesn't start with the prompting event. It's, you know, because there are many times, let's say, that you'll get into an argument with somebody and that won't necessarily lead a person towards problem eating. Why that day? You know, people are you know, vulnerable for various reasons. And we want to understand the circumstances. So it could be like you said, that they were drinking or that they didn't get any sleep or, you know, something, um, or so, so, you know, trying to decrease those chronic vulnerabilities, um, is a big part of this second module of emotion regulation, um, as well as the acceptance of radically accepting your emotion and whatever that is in, in the moment. Um, and then the third uh, module that we teach is distress tolerance. And really the idea here is there's sometimes there's really no skill that you can use like a mindfulness skill or an emotion regulation skill that you're just in such a distressing situation, such a crisis in some ways that the best thing you can do is to make it through mm -hmm. and tolerate the distress you're experiencing more skillfully without acting on it. But you might not be able to do anything to really deal with what's actually going on. Um, that, you know, that may take some later time, you know, sort of problem solving and thinking about it. But the key is when life sort of throws you, um, and your skills feel like they're out the window, what can you do, um, to sort of make it through so you don't do harm? And those skills are crisis survival skills and, um, acceptance skills. Mm -hmm. So you have three modules, the first module being mindfulness, which is teaching some of the skills of being present in the moment without judgment. Mm -hmm without judgment, observing. And then the second module is about emotion regulation. So actually being able to change your emotion, keeping positive mm -hmm. emotions around, decreasing right. vulnerability. And then the third module being about distress tolerance, which is how to get through without making it worse. Yep. Um, and then those skills. So as you teach those skills in the uh, in the program or in the workbook, you're teaching how, clients how to, how to, uh, they're practicing the skills outside of session, but then they're also looking at sort of the chain analysis, the chain of events, how maybe some of those skills could have been used in a binge episode or an overeating episode instead of the, the chains that occurred, the, the links in the chain yes. that occurred. Okay. That's exactly right. And that's really where the mindfulness comes in is ultimately we want people to wake up into the fact that they're in their own chain. Mm. Um, and that this is, you know, that there's, cause there is no way to change one's course if you're not aware that you're even on a course. Um, and so by repetitively doing the chains either on paper, actually we're looking into an app that um, would allow people to do chains um, through an app because it's not always so easy to have a piece of paper around to do this. And we really want the skill to be done in the moment as much as possible. Um, to be analyzing what are your vulnerabilities, what was the prompting event, you know, what were the various, um, you know, thoughts and um, feelings and um, actions that took place. You know, we, to, the, to the degree possible, we'd love that to be happening right then, you know. Um, so we have, you know, we're working on that. Right. Um, well, it's sort of like basketball, right? So you, you go to practice, you know, a certain number of times a week, and then you're in the game. And hopefully yes. when you're in the game, you can use all the skills that you learned 
you know, you learn about passing and you learn about shooting and you learn about, you know, dribbling. But then when you're actually in the game, you got to put it all together. And that's really hard work to do. So the game of now you're in a, you know, your emotions triggered and you want to, and you want to binge, okay, what am I going to do here? You need to have had that practice in place. And I think that's where the, 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 the workbook and actually one of the first things that you target in DBT is doing the program of DBT, right. <laughs> making sure that people do the actual program, even before you work on stopping the binge eating or the emotional eating. That's right. Because otherwise it just becomes one more defeating experience. And we don't, you know, we don't want to set people up. Like, it's not like the first time you learn a skill, it's going to necessarily magically work. And, you know, so I love the basketball one. I mean, analogy that I use. And of course, DBT, one of the things that I like about it, too, is it's filled with teaching stories and analogies and ways of um, getting at a point. But I think about it as like if you were learning to kayak or, or row or something like that, or, you know, ultimately you have to learn how to paddle in a very quiet still body of water you can't learn in rough water going down you know down the rapids or something that's that would be an impossible way to learn and um so it's like you said and at that point you have to have the basic skills down so you can use them um but it takes a lot of practice and i i've certainly noticed that the patients who do the best are the ones who really understand that stopping their behavior isn't necessarily going to save them time um at least at first they're going to have to do a lot of, of work um, to practice. Um, but it's ultimately, of course, so worth it and gets easier and more automatic, just the way the binging was automatic. But in the beginning, it's not. And it really is a matter of practicing and recognizing that you don't have the skills. Or if you do have them, you don't know how to access them when you need them. And so you have to get to the point that you're rehearsing to yourself that you made a commitment to change, let's say. And though we didn't talk about that as part of the module, um, you know, we do actually do in the beginning more work on teaching what, how do you um, do a chain analysis? What is a commitment to making change? How do you deal with, with you know, when you want to change and then you feel disappointed and because you, you haven't made it yet? Um, what are your values that sort of lead you in the first place to wanting to make such a major shift in your behavior? Um, those kinds of things. So those are also things that we do more in the beginning, but we revisit over time. Right. Can you talk a little bit about dialectical commitment to commitment to stopping binge eating or dialectical commitment in general Absolutely. and how that look, what that looks like? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And um, I think you you had um, I remember a conversation we had once had and you know this is actually a conversation I have many many times with when I explain the treatment to other people. Is the treatment so di- well, I'll back up though. Dialectical um, Thinking dialectically is sort of what we had said in the first place, where you have to accept two things that seem contradictory and that there's like a dialogue between two things that are there's a tension between them. But we um, really are trying to keep them both to be true. So you can want to change and you need to accept yourself as you are. Um, Now, we can apply this and this is what we do in, in, in the program towards the desire to stop binge eating. We actually say that life, we, we're looking at whether or not it's possible to have the life that a person wants and to remain a binge eater. Mm. Um, that, you know, and that's up to the patient. And that's what we're really looking at. If a patient feels that they can continue to binge eat and have the life that they want and that they're, they feel that they're living up to their potential, 
I mean, we're not going to focus on stopping binge eating for such a person. I mean, they, it has to be that the eating feels like something that is actually, you know, directly responsible or it feels like a major part of why life um, doesn't feel rewarding the way it should be. And there's a sense of not living up to one's potential. So on the one hand, we actually need to make a major commitment to stop this behavior because it's so harmful. And on the other hand, we know that behavior change is hard and there's got to be a way to accept who you are, whether you binge or you don't binge. Mm -hmm. um, and we um, sort of try to think about this dialectically by saying they're, you know, so they're both true. And we use this notion of an Olympic athlete as one way of thinking about this. We say things like that stopping binge eating is for many people the hardest thing they will ever do in their life, sort of, and we liken it to an Olympic event, saying, you know, Olympic athletes, they're not just trying to, you know, do better at gymnastics or be a good ice skater. They're trying to get, go for the gold. And that when you're trying to go for the gold, um, it requires a different level of focus than just making improvements in your life. And we're saying that stopping binge eating is the equivalent of a gold medal event, that it's that it has to be sort of the, the driving force or, or we believe it's not really possible to change it. If it's just sort of like, it would be good if I stop, but eh, you know, for something that's so, so much a habit and works so well in the moment, even though it leads to such pain afterwards, um, you have to kind of develop this focus on making it like your Olympic event. And so on the one hand, that means that you're totally focused on going for the gold. Um, but Olympic, not all Olympic athletes get a gold medal every time and not all patients who binge, who are trying to stop binge eating will stop just because they use the skill or, um, you know, so there has to be a way of, I think you were saying of learning from what happened and the chain really helps with that, not being judgmental, picking yourself up and then going right back to saying, I can't continue this behavior and lead the kind of life I want. I, it's not possible. And I think our patients have to be pretty convinced it's not it's not possible for them. They've had they've done enough of their own research that they actually can't continue to to behave in ways towards their emotions that are actually so intolerant of their emotions. There's a way that they're blunted. Their their personal growth becomes blunted um, in ways that I think become increasingly upsetting and sad. Mm -hmm. And one of the uh, analogies or metaphors that I like to use around that dialectical commitment is sort of like a maybe a pilot that's flying from California to New York. And mm. if you look on those little maps and like United Airlines, it's a straight, it's like straight line, right? Mm. And, but if you actually you follow the course of an airplane, you'll notice that it goes off course slightly because just lots of different reasons, but then it kind of returns back and then it goes off course and returns back. The intention is to get to New York and 100% this pilot's going to New York. <laughs> it's not going anywhere right. else, but the, the skill is actually noticing when you're off, when you're sort of off track and bringing yourself back again and having that commitment show up over and over and over again. And then the course of recovery from an eating disorder, it, it's, it's, it's rare that anyone does it perfectly. And actually, I, I always get kind of worried if no one has a binge and then, right. and then they're done. So, oh, well, we haven't really even practiced having a binge. That's practice, right? right? Uh, but, but what you do, what over time, what you start to notice is that maybe you don't go off course quite so far. You know, you're not heading up to Canada and then coming back. It's more subtle. And the, the observation skill and the strength building of coming back, just like in meditation, the strength is coming back to your breath. It's not... 
the actual staying on your breath, it is a skill in itself. And yes. so I really like dialectical commitment because it's keeping your eye on the prize, but also with acceptance and understanding, you know, in your back pocket, it's likely that you're going to veer off course from time to time and being kind to yourself in that and using skills to get yourself back on board um, rather than the all or nothing that usually and often happens with disordered yes. eating. Right. So, yeah, it's a great skill. Yeah, totally agree. And um, and that is one of the reasons that when we have patients um, in our program, we really encourage them not to be dieting strictly through the program. Because um, that kind of dieting, some, for some people with binge eating disorder, offers so much structure that the binge eating will disappear temporarily. Um, but that isn't a good place to practice skills because you're in some sort of artificial, you know, kind of structure that you know exactly what you're going to be eating and, you know, and you've arranged your life in such a way that, you know, um, but that isn't, it's not real. And that's why, you know, people go off and on. Um, these food plans, we want to teach people to really stop binge eating. And that requires living their life um, in a real way. It doesn't mean there can't be some structure around their eating, but to have super, super strict rules um, so that they're not even experiencing, um, there's no chance of, to experience anything that would allow them to practice. Yeah. Is it, we don't think is useful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about uh, who this program is intended for? And, and there's different, you know, sort of uh, ways to teach. So you could, your book is coming out in 2018. It's not out yet, but the workbook format versus working with a therapist. Uh, right. Who it's intended for and, and who it wouldn't be necessarily appropriate for, who, who would need additional um, support. Yeah. So one thing I want to, you know, really make clear is many people, think about how DBT can be adapted to um, eating disorders. And, um, you know, when I th- when I started working with Christy Telch, I mean, she's one was one of the few, and I tried to follow it in her footsteps, who actually did, you know, what we call randomized studies, where she took people and they randomly were assigned to DBT or to some other condition to see, so that we really knew what was happening. Because mm-hmm. um, these were you know, essentially the same types of people given two different options. And that was a good way of testing whether one can, you know, treatment really did make a difference or maybe just the passage of time might have helped people get better. And you never know unless, you know, you're, you're doing some sort of comparison. So people have been interested in this. Um, um, and some of them now, you know, are also doing randomized studies, but we, Christy tells really focused on disorders that involved binge eating and her patients were not, um, severely underweight what and um, in the way that an anorexic patient is. So I would not recommend the approach that I use, you know, that we talk about in our book. And that um, when I do have two wonderful co-authors who made major contributions and carried out a lot of the studies behind the book. Uh, so oftentimes when I'm saying I, I mean we. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and also leaning on Marsha Linehan's work and Christy Telch's work. I mean, this is something that uh, even I remember Marsha Linehan would say that, you know, her, her treatment was often like a greatest hits of treatments that she'd learned about. You know, we're all just trying to put together what we think is best for patients. But anyway, our, um, the work that, that Christy Telch had done and now that I'm doing research with and, and my team is, um, is for patients who binge eat or who are bulimic. It's not intended for patients who have anorexia nervosa. It's a very long way of saying that. Um, I think in addition, that, that's DBT for binge eating bulimia. 
um, then the self-help kind of way of looking at it, I think would be more for patients who uh, maybe can't, maybe they're in an area where they can't find a therapist who has expertise in eating disorders. Um, so that might be useful in such cases, or they do have a therapist, but the, um, and the therapist maybe does have expertise in eating disorders, but you know, there's limits of time and money. And I think having it, the treatment in a, um, format where the patient can do the reading and then kind of come in with knowing it's, it doesn't have to be taught. The skills don't have to be taught so much in the session allows the therapist and patient a lot more time to practice skills. Um, and then, but it's also there for people who just can't find a therapist at all or don't have the time to go or the money to go. And we did intend it to be something that you could learn on your own and practice on your own. And we have homework exercises and examples and we, we tried to make it something that could stand on its own. Um, but, but, you know, I, I do think that it's certainly meant for working with the therapist as well. Mm -hmm. Let's say if somebody is purging, um, frequently, um, yeah, I would want them not only to be working with the therapist, but I would, you know, I know you would say the same thing. We want them working with a you know, medical provider yeah. who's monitoring their potassium levels and making sure that they're safe. Um, so yeah, I think when I was saying working out on, on your own, that would be thinking for a patient who, who wasn't having any sort of medical complications that would endanger them and that should be monitored like by supplemental potassium or something like that. Right. Um, and then for severely underweight patients, yeah, then this approach hasn't been, this ha hasn't been tested, but DBT itself has been tested with patients who are anorexic. It's just not this particular approach that we're talking about. And one I would recommend going for self-help. And if you, if you look at, at most, a lot of treatment programs now, I would say almost a good majority of them are using DBT in eating disorder yeah. treatment. So even though DBT has primarily been tested with binge eating and, and with bulimia, uh, it's being used, uh, oh, for anorexia, for yeah, sure. For anorexia. Um, and there is radically open DBT that was specifically designed, um, for patients, um, but I think one of the, the questions sort of had been that, you know, the DBT that we had originally sort of known about in the skills were based um, on patients who expressed, who de um, described feeling overwhelmed by emotion and then engaging in behaviors. Um, anorexia sometimes can be harder to conceptualize using that same model because you're often these, um, you know, patients are not, they're, they're restricting. It's not something you can quantify is I've had a binge and a purge and or two times or three times. It's an ongoing restriction. It's a different, it's different. And often instead of, you know, strong emotions, sometimes there, there can be a numbing that occurs just from under eating, um, you know, or being malnourished. And so we, we just specialize, you know, this treatment isn't meant for that. And so I think it's just important to know what the strengths of the treatment are and then what is just not meant for, for that type of patient, um, it hasn't been tested or developed for it, but others have, as you said, mm -hmm. and the same skills when used in like a partial hospital setting, um, where there's all the rest of the support that's needed for really low weight patients, then I think the DBT skills are really applicable. It's just, I guess, you know, the, the program that I'm talking about, um, we just want to make sure that it it's for the right it's it's used in the right circumstances right. and not people are not overly dependent on a workbook when they really need a lot more and a whole team of providers right and there's also uh, the restrictive eating that can occur uh, even in normal weight individuals so the role of restrictive eating in bulimia for example or some some binge eating that is caused by dietary restriction which is 
not necessarily targeted in, in the DBT uh, protocol. Right. And that was something that I was really uh, interested in when we did the study together of yeah. how, how we could target the restrictive eating component and target that early on because the binges that are caused by not eating enough are, they just have a different quality <laughs> to them yeah. than binges that are uh, due to emotional triggers. So that's also Absolutely. where I think working with nutritionists or even using some of Linda's model with appetite awareness training that she was on an episode uh, a few episodes back, that also can be an important component of, of targeting some of the binges that are triggered by not, not eating enough or restricting food. I think my favorite skill in DBT is the first one you teach of wise mind, because mm. I feel like that's where we need to find that middle path and finding, um, you know, sort of a wise mind response. And, and, and also wise mind also applies to listening to our bodies, right? Uh, yep. A bit better. I yeah. agree. Actually, that's my favorite skill too, is oh, wise mind. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I do think, you know, when I was first learning, um, you know, how to treat eating disorders that I, I was learning um, CBT and CBT has changed over time and there's a CBTE. But when I was learning it, um, a lot of what we were sort of trying to do was to get patients to um, make changes externally, like like even getting people to eat three meals a day. Um, it was some. it often felt like I was suggesting it and imposing it. And what I like about DBT is I can ask patients, well, what would your wise mind say? Right. And that's really nice. It changes my relationship with patients. Um, it feels a little, it feels less, um, I, I, I don't know, combative in some ways. Like I don't have to point out that their thinking is distorted. I can say, well, what does your wise mind say? And I can access that part of them that got them into treatment in the first place that, that knows. Mm -hmm. um, and that's the part I'm aligning with. Um, I think otherwise, and I think we know this a lot from uh, motivational interviewing and other um, things that there's a reactance that builds that comes up when you have somebody who's pushing for change and and you know that's going to build that other part of them. no, 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 I, I don't want to change, even though they want to. It's just a natural process. And so we want to sort of you know help as much as possible not get into those kinds of patterns. Um, and you know, and I know for you, you've learned act and you really incorporate that. I mean, I, I think it's um, it's really great. One of the nice things about working in this sort of research model, you know, is you get to test things in this nice, somewhat pure way. It's not necessarily the way treatments are delivered in the real world. And, um, and I'm not sure <clears throat> it's as effective. I mean, that would be something we'd have to, to really test. But um, I often feel that when I'm in a research study, I'm a lot more confined or constrained to make sure that I'm doing, I'm adherent. And, um, you know, and I, I think it would be nice if we could, and I think that's something we're certainly wanting to do is test more, how do, what are the outcomes we get under real world conditions? And maybe they're better. You know, what I'm interested in, I think, as a clinician is really the middle path. So I've had this, you know, experience of when I was um, at University of Colorado doing very protocoled uh, therapy, because we mm -hmm. were, as you just, as you said, when you're researching something, you need to to follow a protocol to make sure that it's the protocol of the, the intervention um, that you're researching, right? So mm -hmm. I, I've had that experience. And, you know, at the other end of the spectrum is just completely, you know, completely fluid, right? Just having the client come in and you just talk about whatever they're doing and you don't have a sort of a big 
um, theoretical orientation or picture of what, what you're targeting. And so I find that I want to be somewhere in the middle of that, mm-hmm. of having the knowledge uh, and background in, in these protocols, but then being flexible enough to apply them uh, with, with, with clients. And it's not going to be in a certain number of sessions necessarily, but I don't work in a managed care setting. I work in prior practice. So, yeah. I think that's very, very, you know, interesting and, and important to look at um, I, I, that kind of what I would call what you're doing is, you know, the real world application um, and maybe in some ways sort of an eclectic approach at times. And, um, you know, I, I just think it's important to get a better understanding. Like, I mean, one thing we don't really even know is, let's say, how DBT um, or CBT, for that matter, so we're working on that. Um, in the research protocols, what even if a person is trying to follow the protocol fairly exactly, but is using a really different patient population who are paying, most patients in research don't pay, you know, so there's no research assistant gathering all the data, you know, for you. It's um, a real world clinic, let's say, um, and there's no clear number of sessions that you have to have. What kind of results do you get there? It's, um, it's so hard to do that kind of research because you don't have a grant behind you. Um, but it, it just seems so essential mm-hmm. um, to, to have a better sense of what we're doing and what kind of outcomes we're getting. Um, but really, really hard to get funding for that kind of work. I wish it were easier. Mm-hmm. I wish that, you know, all practitioners could be part of a network. Maybe you could talk just sort of as, as we close up here, talk a little bit about what, what you think the next direction for, for DBT and, and even in your research interests is, is going to be going. Um. Well, you know, this is something that I've talked about. Um, I mean, so I have a, a real interest in why stopping binge eating doesn't lead to weight loss. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know for sure that the field is going that way. I think patients care a lot about this, and it's there are a lot of controversies in the field. Um, so my co-authors, um, um, Sarah Adler and um, Phil Masson, um, and I, even through the book, had to really carefully discuss how we were going to talk about weight loss and where we were going to talk about weight loss. Um, what's interesting is, is I think is that the behaviors that lead to weight gain in the first place might not be changing those behaviors may not be enough to change the, the weight to, you know, to reverse the process. Um, that there's something that happens through repeated binge eating that causes changes that just the stopping doesn't just take care of altogether. Um, in terms of what feels like satiety, um, you know, so better understanding those physiological changes that occur when people engage repetitively in maladaptive behaviors um, and having better tolerance for, for what that is, understanding better in the brain, how is it or is it not similar to alcohol mm-hmm. um, in the brain in terms of its effect on the reward pathways? You know, is it really an addiction? And what do we mean by that? Um, how do we deal with patients who will really say that they can't eat sugar and they get triggered and other patients where it's really whatever rule they make, it doesn't matter as long as they feel that they're within that, that rule and the, the food itself doesn't matter for them. It's that the, they break, they said that they were going to have a cookie and they had two, but it's not the sugar per se for some of them. And some of them, it feels like it's just, you know, having any sugar at all. How do you deal with that? Especially when in general in eating disorders, we feel it's really important to not have rules around food and what's acceptable and what's not, because that so invariably gets people in trouble. Um, so understanding better, I think the, those, what, what happens, what happens when somebody has been 
um, severely overweight their whole life. You know, what, what is the role of binge eating um, there? Sometimes it's not the same as somebody who's at a lower weight and binge eating. Um, and, and also the necessity of, let's say of dealing with your one's weight for sleep apnea or other kinds of problems that can come up that, that differs or developing diabetes, those, those kinds of things have an influence. Um, so I, I'm interested in helping more helpful, um, for patients who want to lose weight when we have a treatment that doesn't actually focus on weight loss and doesn't necessarily bring about weight loss. Yeah, and so that's um, that's a difficult uh, place to stand because of the the battle between um, individuals that are researching obesity, which are very much you know interested in in weight loss and, and weight management and how to um, maybe even restrict calories, uh, restrict intake. Right. But at the same time, that's sort of counter to what traditionally has been the eating disorder field's focus, which has been more of a you know all food is legal, you know, yeah. don't, don't set up rules. And there, there is a middle, going back to middle path, <laughs> is that there's got yeah. to be a middle path there. And you're asking some important questions. And, and those are questions that I have as well. Are some of the foods that, that people are binging on, for some people, have more of um, an impact yeah. on them in their inability to stop versus other types of foods. And maybe for others, there's not. And the length of time that you've been having an eating disorder, what, right. what's happening for you, what's your genetic profile and how that influences yep. things. Uh, so there's, there's a lot of more detailed kind of teasing out, I think, that could be, that could be done in terms of um, individualized care. And, and I, I see that as the next sort of, sort of the next step is continuing to individualize our, our, our treatment and approach based on what is the, you know, what, what's happening for each you know, person. I think so, that's right. Yeah. And one thing I was just going to add in there was that, you know, we really know that having really strong intolerance of your body shape, like the body image dissatisfaction in itself is a huge problem. And that, um, and that can occur at any weight. Um, you could be what looks like from to, to the outside, like a completely normal weight, but be highly, highly dissatisfied with the state of your body. And that if that's not looked at, it's actually really often hard to, to make changes that just being dissatisfied with your body and having a really poor body image, um, seems to be related to making worse food choices. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so, I mean, that's just another component even beyond the food itself is your feelings about yourself. Right. Um, and your intolerance, and then also society's intolerance and the pressure that people often feel. Um, and that sort of, you know, I think one of the counterbalancing forces is the, the movement of health at every size, um, really trying to see that the um, stigmas against obesity are, you know, uh, you know are, are society's way of making judgments that are not always based on health. Um, but people can be very healthy at various sizes and, um, and, and need to, we need as a society to find ways to accept that, you know, people have different set points, you know, and not cause an eating disorder in people through trying to make them a size that they're not. Um, so all of, I mean, but all of it's unanswered because, um, you know, and again, like you, I, there's that middle path, um, I think for me, which is, you know, sort of, um, looking at what the research might say. Um, looking at what I might think, but in the middle, you know, I'm always trying to attend to what does the client want and um, how do I honor what they want using the, the expertise I might have to help them in one way or the other. Right. Um, 
Right. And what so, are the client's values and in terms of the life that they want and how is weight exactly. or, you know, get, get, not even weight, how is their physical health maybe yes. getting in the way or their binge eating or their whatever. Um, that That's what I'm interested in. Yes. It's not about yes. a specific size uh, no, at all. it's about quality of life, it's about quality of life. and whatever it, yeah. it takes to, to live that high quality of life that we want people to live. And, um, that's why they're there and that's what we want to help them achieve. Um, and I think like we're saying DBT offers some really nice ways of helping people think about making change and inspires them to make change. It helps the therapist stick with it when the going gets tough. Um, you know, we haven't talked about some of the other components of DBT, like a consultation team. And, um, you know, so there's, there's a lot that's in this treatment that I find useful, though certainly cognitive behavioral therapy and interpersonal therapy are other well-known and very, and even better studied approaches, um, for eating disorders. It's just, um, you know, this is one more alternative that will work for certain people. Well, thank you so much, Deborah Safer. I really appreciate uh, you taking your time to talk with me and come on this podcast and share all this information with our listeners. And I'm wondering if and people are interested in learning more about DBT uh, for binge eating, where they should go from here? Because I, your workbook's not out yet, but I know uh, maybe you could talk a bit about um, other places where they could um, yeah. Le yeah, learn more. Well, so there we do have the therapist manual that um, is out, which actually goes through a lot of the same skills that we um, teach in the self-guided self-help. Mm -hmm. It's just that um, it's a little less user-friendly because it's meant for a therapist. Um, but they certainly could get that. And that's with me and Christy Tel Telchin, Eunice Chen, who's another researcher who does a lot of work in this area. Um, so I would say if they wanted to learn this approach, that might be one of the best ways to do it. Or and you know, maybe to talk to their therapists about having them learn that approach. Um, I think for this particular way of following the skills that was sort of laid out and sort of um, tested through research, um, that would be, I would think, the best place. But certainly, B Tech has, I mean, you know, so there's also just going straight to the source and yes. going back to Marshall Linehan mm -hmm. and looking up dialectical behavior therapy. And there's a there's self-help groups to, to learn DBT and learn the DBT skills. So that's, um, those are other options, joining a DBT group. Mm -hmm. well, I'll put a link to your therapist manual. That is a great resource. Um, and then also a link to behavioral tech so that people can explore um, DBT resources there. And that could be a great, yeah, a great place to, to, to start. Great. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. And we will um, put up also a link uh, to some of your research studies as well. People want to read the actual studies that you've, that you've um, published in this area. And I really appreciate, um, I appreciate you as a, as a person, but also just appreciate the work that, um, the body of work that you've created on DBT for eating disorders. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Diana. It's really been a, a real pleasure talking to you and you've helped me think a little bit more about some of these things that I love the descriptions. You know, I, I'll use, I like the going north, you know, um, all you, there's some nice metaphors that you've used that I'm going to use as well. So I appreciate that. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes. You can also find us at www.offtheclockpsych.com. That's offtheclockpsych.com. Music by John Goo and Susie Stevens.